Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, a podcast where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Anika and in this episode I'm joined by Armina, Kara and Laura to talk about climate change and offer our points of view on how nuclear energy can potentially help us to deal with this massive crisis that humanity is facing. So to start off I want to ask Kara, why do you care about climate change? Oh, thanks Anika, um, good question. Uh, I think, yeah, we were talking about this earlier and I said um, a really good example about why I care about climate change is that we've seen the future that we could end up with in Wally and that's not what any of us want. Um, I like being able to go out for a walk amongst the trees um, and be able to see some nature and I think overall um, we need to protect it because it's kind of what we we owe to the planet. Um, And a really great thing I heard recently was that someone said planetary health equals people's health, which equals economic health. So really overall we need to have a healthy planet so we can have a healthy society. Absolutely, and Wally's a tearjerker. <laughs> it is. <laughs> not watch that movie. Um, Amna, what about you? Why do you care about climate change? Um, so I have two little girls, um, and I would like them to have a green future. I would like them, like Kara, to be able to go out into the woods, have a walk, breathe some fresh air, and have these options and things going I mean when I'm having a stressful day just being able to go for a, a, a walk and breathe in some fresh air it really calms me down and to think that potentially the future generations couldn't have that that's a really sad thing to even imagine and I wouldn't wish that on anybody absolutely it's definitely something that's for granted being able to go out for a walk and, and breathing cleaner yeah. and having that for you know children and our future is so important yeah COVID, COVID's completely highlighted that um you know when we've been in lockdown and stuff and everyone's just even to be able to go out and have a walk like it's just been amazing so you know you, you take things for granted Laura what about you um for, for me it's, it's what I grew up with uh, so I was born in the northeast of England in the mid-1980s which was when like the miners strikes and things like that were going on for uh, the coal miners um, so I sort of grew up with this backdrop of jobs have been taken from people and it was related to um, how we were polluting the planet as well. And uh, there's this idea that you can do it better, you can have societies that live sustainably, um, that have jobs that don't have such a big harm on the environment and therefore, as Kara said, it's just better for everyone. So it's what I'm used to. It's, uh, it's everything I've been taught says that we should try and do something to stop climate change. So now we've got some idea of why people care about climate change, what can we do? One of the biggest contributors to climate change is uh, the greenhouse gas emissions from electricity generation. Electricity is generated from a wide range of sources, all with advantages and disadvantages. Um, And recently, the International Energy Agency, um, or the IEA, uh, has been collecting data on electricity use to help us figure out what we're using and what changes we can make. For example, in 2018, the electricity consumption in the UK was 4.9 megawatt hours per person. Now, if we can compare this to another country, uh, such as Pakistan, uh, which is uh, only 0.6 megawatt hours per person, which indicates that there's a huge disparity in how much electricity uh, different countries consume. So when we're talking about you know, having these conversations, not only do we need to look at how much electricity we're using, but where our electricity comes from. Uh, So in the UK, our electricity typically comes from a mix of renewables, nuclear, biomass, imports, and unfortunately, a lot still comes from fossil fuels in the form of gas. But there is talk of a green industrial revolution, which would diversify the energy mix by expanding renewables and delivering new nuclear power. Yeah, it's something that the international agency I was talking about also mentions in their sustainable development scenario. However, we have to be mindful that there's no one solution 
And nationally and internationally, we need a diverse energy mix to meet the net zero target. Now, when you dig into the data, you can see how electricity in the UK is generated on any given day to meet demand. Um, we've recently used this electricinsights.co.uk website to look at the energy mix in the UK. Um, and we chose a couple of days. So we looked at the 8th of March, where most of the demand um, was actually met by gas. There was 50% uh, was met by gas and only 13% of demand was met by wind. If we fast forward, however, to the 13th of March, and these numbers are pretty much reversed, we're getting 19% uh, being met by gas and 46% by wind. So on the days where wind wasn't blowing, natural gas made up for the shortfall. Um, so I want to ask our panellists, if we didn't have natural gas to fill in the gap on days that weren't windy, what kind of things would you do? Uh, so I guess the most obvious answer, if you've got nothing else, is just to sit and wait. Um, which I, it's, I would be really uncomfortable with. I like knowing what's happening. And if you don't know how long you're going to be without electricity for, um, especially if you're in the north of England, like I am, where it's dark an awful lot of the day in winter, I think we only get like six or eight hours of daylight. Uh, and I wouldn't have heating because I need a pump that um, is run on electricity to generate, like get the water going around my heating system. I'd just be sitting in the dark and the cold, I think, which is fairly miserable to think about. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't sound nice. What about you, Clara or Amina? Um, I guess, well, it depends what was down. If uh, they still somehow had the telephone signals going okay, I guess I would just sparingly use the battery in my phone. So like you said, I would just sit and wait and hopefully, hopefully it would be okay. So I'd maybe go to, and then, example, you could go to a neighbouring area where they didn't have the same um, problems of the power being down. So yeah, maybe I'd go sit outside somewhere that I was close to working phone towers still <laughs> I could you take advantage of that maybe plug my phone into um, a train station plug a socket in the wall for example I love how the most important technology is your phone Tara. that's that's no no heating no light but phone is like number one priority for this scenario where we don't have enough electricity to keep um to keep things going <laughs> I'm a millennial I, I can have candle lights for light it's fine <laughs> <laughs> but I need my phone for everything else. We need to have access to social yeah. media and Candy Crush. That's like <laughs> the high priority. What about you, Amina? I think for me, it would have to be coming up with some practical solutions. Um, if I know that this is going to happen, get a wood burner in the house. I don't know, maybe get some uh, some more glass in the house so that you can maximise daylight. I don't know. You'd have to do some out-of-the-box thinking to be able to accommodate that. Again, I've got little girls, so for me, it would be a lot of planning how to all their meals and stuff all the microwave meals will have to go out of the window and as any parent would know that is a huge lifesaver um so yeah a lot of planning would be required layers and yeah all eventualities you'd have to think of and it's um inconvenient let's say to say the least i can imagine eating a lot of cold baked beans <laughs> yeah living like an undergraduate again <laughs> I hope you didn't need cold big beans in undergraduate. <laughs> if you're living in an apartment, you don't even have uh, gas cookers, right? So you've got electricity. So if you're thinking, I mean, from a house point of view, at least I've got gas cooker and stuff. But, but like, I, I, I know that there, there will be plenty of people out there who don't have, like, gas cookers and stuff, so they'll have electricity. So for them, you're literally taking everything away from them, aren't you? Um, all sorts of food aspects and stuff, you're taking them all away. And in an apartment, you don't necessarily have that much daylight coming through anyways. And uh, yeah. 
That's a fair point, actually. But I guess in um, I live in an apartment that don't have gas in it. But what I do have is it's, it's actually a modern build, which is built really, really well. So it's almost like passive house standards. So I don't I don't use central heating because I don't need to. Um, so actually, that's a good consideration that in winter, if we were then relying on having no heating sources, is there something around like going forward to making sure our houses are built slightly better? So some aspects of it don't rely so much on energy sources. One type of technology that people are considering is like having kind of more centralized heating for cities, for example, to have like instead of everyone having their own boilers, having a kind of centralized heating system across the city and and also this kind of thing about small solutions which you've all been discussing that that kind of stuff does already is occurring around the world in places with kind of shortages of electricity um for example i've seen like in afghanistan they have like these solar powered um cookers almost so it's not a solar panel so it doesn't have all the high-tech technology related with a solar panel but it's literally like a huge mirror made of loads of tiny mirrors that's curved and concentrates the light from the sun um which you can then, yeah, basically concentrates the heat and you can use that to, to cook and heat water and things like that. So I think these kinds of small solutions that people are talking about are really important. Um, but obviously we do need to talk about the bigger scale and about national solutions as well. Um, so we've talked about what we do individually in our own homes if we didn't have access to enough electricity. But what do you think we could do on a, on a national level to kind of reduce the amount of fossil fuels we're using and look at other solutions that are cleaner? Um, I guess, well, the first thing I'll say is um, just in reference, are you talking about different solutions in different countries? There's some really great resources online. People are interested in that kind of thing. And it's kind of where I first cut my teeth on the kind of more um, out of the box thinking with engineering. Um, and so one would be engineers without borders who have always championed massively what they do. And another one is practical action. Um, and they both are charities who do lots of work in different countries around the world and who partner with organizations in different countries um, to really kind of highlight what great technology there is on a small scale. Um, but then trying to bring that back to a bigger scale, I guess one solution is um, that maybe is not so great for climate change is the UK is currently um, in the process of possibly opening up the first deep coal mine for the first time in what 50 years or something ridiculous like that which might bring us back energy security but there's questions around whether that's really good for the future of climate change um i'll just leave that hanging there shall i <laughs> i think that mine's a really interesting thing to consider because i think what gets missed a lot in the media is a very separate conversation this but it's actually for um creating steel um, which would be useful for making wind turbines. Um, it's not going to be used solely for the purpose of creating electricity. Um, but for some reason, the media keeps missing that point and like jumping on the sort of the climate change agenda and relating coal to electricity generation. Um, but you're right in that we need to find some sort of alternate um, mass power source to plug that gap. Um, and I guess, well, partly it's plugging that gap that already exists. It's also reducing our demand, right? So we can make things more efficient. So it's sort of balancing the supply with demand um, question. So I actually, I didn't realize that that was actually mostly for steel. I thought it was for energy production. And I wondered how it got under my radar up until suddenly it was it was there. And I was like, how is this there? And that would be because I'm not aware of the steel industry in any way. Um, so obviously I wasn't hearing these conversations. So that reassures me slightly that I didn't just miss something. Um, but also, yeah, I think definitely back to the passive house thing, which I just said, it's about reducing our demand. Arguably, you know, lots of energy materials go into building passive house in the first place. But, you know, we'll have to start thinking about the whole life cycle cost um, of different things. So that's one of it. And another solution I could maybe just throw in there is batteries. We need better batteries. We need to be able to store power so we can rely on things which are 
intermittent like wind and solar. Um, so that's one part of the solution. And I know there's some really great things happening in the UK, different research around batteries. And you could delve into some of the conspiracies around the policy stopping that and why they don't get so much funding if you really wanted to. Um, but I don't know that much detail to really say it today. But there is some interesting technology for sure coming from that. Yeah, it sounds like there are a lot of developments coming out of quite different sectors. I mean, one of the big things is um, smart meters for figuring out what the peaks and troughs are in demand, which could help with generating like smart grids that can adapt, like balance the load somehow, depending on what demand actually is, which I think sounds really ambitious. Yeah, so I, I have... Um... Smart meters, I've always been not known so much about. It's interesting you bring that up because there's always this thing I work a little bit. I work with some data scientists and it's always like we've been collecting so much data for years and years and doing nothing with it. So the smart meters themselves aren't going to change anything. We have to take the data and do something with it. And once we start doing those clever things, that's when we can make the change. But back to my flat again, my flat is only, I think this week, one year old construction. I have a smart meter that is the first generation. They installed the first generation smart meter that my energy provider can't connect to. And they've told me I've got bad reception in my area. So even if they wanted to upgrade to the new one, I can't. So I now have a smart meter, which has been installed and it looks great because they can put it on the perspectives of the flats. It doesn't work. I have to myself, I, I did, I spent a few weeks there, going in once a day, checking my own meter readings just to see how much energy I was using, even though my smart meter was sitting there flashing red next to it because it wasn't connected to anything. <laughs> so there's definitely some barriers to technology. <laughs> we, we've got the same issue. We've got a brand new smart meter. Everything's all there. But no, guess what? When we need a reading, we have to get into tight nook and crannies to be able to get a reading um, to be able to give it to them. Yeah, so it's an interesting point that for years people have been collecting data and not doing much with it because the um, UK government, what, decades ago, was like, we will invest in new nuclear builds. We will have these new power stations. And not a lot seems to have happened <laughs> i mean obviously like hickley point c seems to get in the news a lot for various reasons it's important to um re realize that although these things are really great and stuff like nuclear energy is like a solid sustainable source of energy um but the current sort of mechanism that we've got to um build the nuclear sites they have a lot of red tape that they need to get through and there's a lot of um stuff which is built into it which makes it a very lengthy lengthy process um, and whether that's actually practical or not is another discussion I think for, for the UK but then SMRs can come into it um, so small modular reactors um, and this is basically we they are making nuclear reactors but on a smaller scale um, and the uh, concept is to make more smaller SMRs throughout the country um, which will produce less electricity, but they will require less upfront cost because for a regular nuclear build, you, uh, for a regular nuclear plant, you will need a really big investment, whereas these in comparison need a smaller investment, produce less energy, but they, if you have more of them frequently, then you could fill the gap that way. So that would be a really good sustainable source of energy for the UK mix. It's not the solution, but for the mix, it would be quite good, like you highlighted that on different days, we use different amounts. Um, so wind and gas, we use different amounts of energy from both of them. And this could just be part of the mix. It could be a solid baseline kind of um, energy source into the mix. Yes, I think the data on that Electric Insights website, I think it has nuclear sort of like a constant about 14-ish percent contribution to meeting demand. It doesn't seem to vary that much. It does vary sort of like when there's um, shutdown periods and those kind of things. But 
generally you're right it, it, it's sort of stable yeah so it sounds like that's the sort of thing that with like a national program it could be coordinated so it would continue to supply that sort of that base demand and it'd be topped up with other less uh, reliable sources yeah. is that the right phrase i think yeah the small modular route is it kind of addresses the issues with with larger reactors of any kind which they just take so long to build like if we're having this issue today where we need to you know address this we needed to address this about 10 years ago or even further back to be honest so we should have done it even previously so having technology which it's quicker to set up, which obviously when things are smaller, it's a lot faster to, to set up the technology and, and get things um, available and, and up and running. And I guess if it's smaller, it can also be used in like remote communities as well. It doesn't have to be close to, um, you know, large groups of people. You can even use it in, in you know, remote rural areas, places like where they were planning to build that, um, the new coal mine, for example, which I think is not too far from you, Laura. No, it's it, it would be just a few miles up the road from my house, actually. I'd go past it on my Sunday run. <laughs> I think, yeah, a lot of interesting, interesting different concepts. And um, yeah, to kind of tie everything together, there's a lot of different solutions that we need to, to pursue to fill, fill the gap um, that we face when we're trying to get rid of um, fossil fuels. Um, but I think the key thing from that is there's no one silver bullet. There's no one perfect solution that will meet all of the requirements of, of the UK or internationally of the of the world for example we need to have a wide variety of, of mixes um do people want to comment on why we need to have a variety or kind of reiterate some points that they've made um I guess I'll say the variety is really important because I think what we've discussed here is the technology isn't always the barrier it's the implementation of how people do that um, and so to get the policy working and to get the finance behind it it's going to take lots of different initiatives together and inevitably that's going to mean different approaches to technology not everyone's going to agree to invest in the same thing and to do community-led projects for example all looking at nuclear you know they'll maybe want to do solar instead um, so yeah it'll be a variety of people being involved which means a variety of technologies absolutely yeah, I think any financial accountant would say if you're going to invest in something, you need to diversify. Don't just invest in one thing, mm, right? I like that. Good comparison. So if you're doing some energy accountancy, maybe you'd say well, the same also, thing. There are, there are advantages to every sort of solution. You can't sort of say, well, you know, um, wind is the, the, the way to go and, you know, that's the only way. You should be, everyone should be open to different possibilities and there are good things and bad things with each one. Um, and it's important to to get the best from each one and to be able to do that you will need a mix yeah that makes sense yeah totally agree absolutely yeah no i think that's been a really interesting conversation and hopefully we've showcased a variety of technologies that we feel could be used uh, to address climate change and kind of the important role that nuclear could play especially through small modular reactors i think that was one of the the things that that we came up with um, yeah, so I hope that's been useful for everyone. And I just want to say a huge thank you to Amna, Kara and Laura for their insights today. That's been really, really fantastic. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.